And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we do thank you for the privilege, the ability to gather together this evening as your people, or to gather together as your church. And Lord, we now pray as we turn to your word that is living and active, Lord, that you would bless us by pouring out your spirit upon this church, that you may give us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit, and Lord, that you might make us those who respond in faith to the word that you have spoken. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Most of us have, at one point or another, experienced a wake-up call in our life. And a wake-up call is when there is something in our life that grabs our attention. It could be words that were spoken. It could be an event that occurs in our life. But it grabs our attention and requires that we make drastic changes if we're going to move forward. Uh, Perhaps you've reached the point in your uh, life where you've had a wake-up call with your health, where you realized... I need to take great care of my body, make sure I'm eating well, make sure I'm exercising, getting all the sleep that I need if I'm going to be a healthy person and and continue on to do the work that the Lord has called me to. Uh, Perhaps if you're married, you've had a wake-up call at some point with your spouse where you think things are going pretty good in your marriage and then your wife sits you down and says, well, this needs to maybe uh, be improved in our marriage. It could be a wake-up call. You need to make some drastic changes. Or if you're a student, uh, perhaps a wake-up call has come when you get back that uh, midterm exam or that report card and all the hard work you think you've been putting in, uh, you need to, need to recalibrate. You need to make some drastic changes to avoid academic failure. Here in the third chapter of Revelation with Christ's letter to the church in Sardis, he is issuing a wake-up call to the church. With regard to their spiritual health, he is saying, not everything is as good as you think it is. You're very sick. There's There's a cancer under the surface that is tearing the church apart and it needs to be remedied. With regard to the relationship, not everything is as it seems. We are not on good terms. The relationship is not doing well. Drastic measures need to be taken. If they were being graded, they're receiving a failing grade in their studies with the Lord. And so he issues them a wake-up call. 
And the, the theme of this text could be that Christ calls His people to wake up and turn to Him. Christ calls His people to wake up and turn to Him. The passage can be outlined with uh, three different points. First, we've got both the address and the assessment in verses 1 and 4. Verses 2 and 3, we have a command from Christ. And then finally, a promise in verses 5 to 6. So we'll look at each of those. First, the address and the assessment in verses 1 to 4. The address and assessment. With regard to the address, this letter is addressed to the church in Sardis. And by now in our study of the letters of the book of Revelation, we've, we've kind of seen the pattern. We, we understand how these letters are structured. They're addressed first to the church, and then Christ is going to show some attribute of Himself to the church to bring about their repentance, their encouragement, whatever it might be. But this is addressed to the angel of the church, the leadership of the church in Sardis. And just a few words about Sardis. Sardis was located about 30 miles to the southeast of Thyatira. So as we've said, we're kind of working our way around where the letters would have been delivered. You can break out the map at the back of your Bible and and look at where all these different cities would be. Uh, Sardis was located on top of a very uh, steep hill, steep cliffs. And one thing that this allowed was for the church, rather the city, to have good defenses against enemies who would try to overpower it. Located on top of cliffs. And because of its location, it thought that it was rather safe. But if you study the commentaries and history, you find out that not once, but twice, was Sardis overtaken by enemy forces because they didn't think to set a guard on top of the steep cliffs. And Sardis was actually also a a wealthy city. So Christ is writing to Sardis now for the attributes that are shown of Christ. These are all attributes that are drawn out from Revelation chapter 1 and then uniquely shown to each of the seven churches in order to encourage or rebuke them. And we have two items here in the attributes. It says that we have the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And I remember as a a young boy reading through the book of Revelation and many things confused me, but When I read chapter 1 and I read this chapter here and read that there were seven spirits of God, I said, I I didn't know that. I thought there was only one Holy Spirit. Well, that's, that's true. There is only one Holy Spirit. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean when it says seven spirits of God? Well, as we've seen in Revelation, numbers are often very symbolic and throughout the Scriptures... Uh, Seven is the number of completion. It's the number of fullness. And so when Christ is saying that He has the seven spirits of God, He's saying that He possesses the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, it speaks about how Christ will send forth the Spirit. And as we will see in Christ's letter to the church of Sardis, this is something that they desperately need to know. That it's Christ who has the Spirit and that He's willing to pour out the Spirit upon His church to bring about renewal, to bring about restoration, and to bring about revival. 
to bring about revival. That's what they need. I remember prior to uh, moving to Jackson, prior to attending RTS, my wife and I lived in Jasper, Tennessee, and I served as an intern at the church in in Jasper, Tennessee. And every day I would have about a 15-minute commute from our house, which was out in the country, to the church, which was downtown in the city. I remember it was one uh, July morning, and I was traveling toward the church. I had the window down on the truck, and I looked out the uh, the driver's side window, and I, I saw there was an old white church that had a big sign, and it had uh, specific dates, July such and such, and they said, come out for a revival. And um, I chuckled just a little bit because I thought in my head, as, as we know, if it's truly a revival, you can't schedule it. You can't schedule a revival and say God's going to show up with this spirit and, and renew the church on this date. Revival takes place when Christ pours out the spirit and, and renews his people, fixes their eyes upon Christ. Now, you, you can pray for revival. You can hope for revival. You can uh, prepare your heart so that you're ready for revival. But ultimately, it's Christ who needs to pour out his spirit upon the people. And that's what the, this church needs to know. They need to be fixing their eyes upon Christ. The seven stars, this is one of those places where we don't have to guess what the seven stars are. We're told in chapter 1, the seven stars are the seven churches. So Christ stands before the church and He says, I have the fullness of the Spirit and I hold in my hand the churches. Look to me. Look to me. Fix your attention upon me with the eyes of of faith. And he continues on in verse 1, and we have the assessment, the second part of our first point. He begins in the second part of verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This church has the reputation of being alive. They have the outward appearance of of health. It looks like everything is going along just fine. The church may have had a great deal of wealth. The church may have never really struggled with issues with their budget. Perhaps they had good quality preaching week in, week out, and had a great many people attending their services, and yet, both in the quality of their worship and their lives, they're lacking. It says that they're dead. The same type of problem that was happening in the days of the prophet Malachi when he talks about uh, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? In Malachi's day, they were going through the motions, but it was, it was dead. They were not fully engaged to the Lord. And the Lord does not want lazy service. And as we look at this letter, we can study it and we we see many things, but writers and commentators have pointed out that there's actually something missing in the letter to Sardis, something that is listed in some of the other churches. And that would be, there's no talk of persecution in the letter to Sardis. There's no persecution. And why is that? Well, there could be many different reasons, but I would suspect it is because 
there's nothing to persecute. The church within the culture looks no different. They're, they're going along with whatever the culture says. They're making no demands upon the life of their congregation. They don't look anything different from those around them. As we've seen, the, the churches in the first century, they faced a lot of persecution, both from unbelieving Jews and the Roman Empire. There's no persecution here. It seems that they're just going along and everything is fine. And one thing I often have to ask is, is the church, not only here locally, but also in our country, would we say that the church is a threat to the plan of Satan? Does Satan get worried when the saints of Pinehaven gather together for prayer, asking that the gospel would go forth? Is he concerned with the church in the United States? Is it a threat at all? Now, of course, we don't need to make the gospel offensive on our own. We don't need to bring about persecution on ourselves just to say that we're being godly. That will, that will happen on its own. In our, in our current circumstances, if you clearly teach who is God and who is man, people will get offended. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and also among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. The gospel will be offensive, terribly offensive in the eyes of those who are perishing. But fortunately, the Lord has some who are still yet to be gathered into his kingdom. And to those, it will be glorious truth. And so these, this church is nearly entirely spiritually dead and they're issued the wake-up call. They must remember Notice also in verse 4, the second part of the assessment. He says, yet there are still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. First, it is good news to hear that there are at least some holdouts within this church who have not soiled their garments. They have not taken part in the uh, idolatry and the sexual morality. If they have not taken part in the rampant sin that is taking place, they have not taken part in the uh, just empty form of Christianity that seems to be taking place in Sardis. Rather, they're trying to be faithful to the Lord even in the midst of difficult circumstances in the church. And he says that they are worthy. We certainly understand these, these Christians are not worthy in anything and of themselves. They are worthy because they have been united to Jesus Christ because He is worthy. That is why. We'll turn second to our second point, the command in verses 2 through 3. The command is issued by Christ in verses 2 to 3 that they are to wake up, strengthen what remains. 
Remember what you've received. Keep it and repent. They're to go back to the Gospel as it was first preached to them and hold fast to it, repenting and believing in Christ. And not to be led astray from that. And what I think is so wonderful here in verses 2 and 3, when Christ issues this command to repent, He is being so gracious. Even though they have strayed so far, even though they are almost entirely dead, what is He doing? He is offering a chance for life. He is offering a chance to come back. Though they have strayed so far, He has not given up on them. He has been gracious enough to have this letter sent to them and is commanding them to repent. Scripture is full of wonderful promises for those who will repent, for those who will come to Christ. You can think about it at the end of the book of Revelation. It speaks about to the one who is thirsty. Let him come. Drink of the water of life freely without price. Christ is not asking them to make themselves worthy. He's just asking them, repent and turn in faith to Me. Turn in faith to Me. If they do not, He will come as a thief in the night. And what's tricky about Revelation is sometimes there are times of judgment spoken about in this book that refer to the end of the age when Christ is going to come back and judge the nations. But there's other times in Scripture where there is a coming of Christ where it's prior to the end of the age. In the Gospels especially, when Christ is speaking of parables where He's going to come as a thief in the night, end of the age. But here He's saying He's going to come against this church in the first century in judgment. So this is something that's going to take place in their, in their lifetime He will come as a thief. He will bring judgment upon them. It is a terrible situation to be in. But the faithful, what are the faithful to do? Those who are faithful who have not soiled their garments, are they just to bail out, to give up on the church? No, he doesn't say anything of the sort. But rather, it would be that they need to continue to hold on. And just as the Lord kept His servants in the days of Baal who had not bowed their knee to Baal, so too He has those who are faithful among this faithless church. And He has the same today, faithful among faithless churches. Make it your aim to be faithful. No matter where the Lord has placed you, make it your aim to be faithful. No matter where you see professing Christians going off to. And now, third and finally, let's look at the promise that Christ issues. Verses 5 and 6, we have three different promises. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. Be clothed in white garments. White, throughout the Scriptures, is used as a picture of purity. This would be a reference to the, to the, to the matchless purity and uh, moral perfection that Christians will be clothed with. They'll be clothed with Christ. They'll be clothed with Christ. One of the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth, to be without sin. Secondly, he says that he will never blot out their names of the book of life. And the book of life, as we know from Revelation chapter 20, is the 
uh, book that contains all those, the names of all of those who are going to enter into the new heavens and the new earth. To be in that book means that you will be with God and His people forever, never separated. There will be no crying, no tears, no pain. Wonderful things. And it also says if your name is not found in the book of life, you will be cast into the lake of fire. You'll be cast into hell. Utter torment and pain without a second chance. I remember back when I was in about fifth grade, I was listening to the radio, and there was a, there was a pastor who was preaching on Revelation chapter 20, and he got to the, the book of life. And he was speaking about all, the, all the, the wonderful things that would take place for those who were found in the Lamb's book of life. And he went on and on and on talking about the glories of heaven. And then he exhorted the congregation and he started talking to them directly and he said, wouldn't you like to know for sure that your name was in the book of life? Wouldn't you just wish that there was a way for you to, to crack into the, to the database of heaven, crack into the computers to see if your name was actually in there? Wouldn't you just give anything for that to happen? He just paused and he said, you don't need to crack into the database of heaven. You don't need some secret knowledge. The dividing line between being in the Lamb's book of life and not is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you repenting? Are you trusting Christ? Have you cast it all upon Him? Are you united to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if you are, your name is in the book of life and it will never be taken out. Are you resting upon the promise that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life? Then you can know. And you can have assurance. And finally, He will confess their names before His Father. If you trust Him, He will confess your your name. There is... Among those who are born of a woman, no one of higher rank. In all of creation, there is no one of higher rank than the one who has been appointed the mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is the beloved of the Father. If He confesses your name to God the Father, no one can stand against you. If the entire Trinity is for you in your salvation, nothing can be against you. You will love and confess your name before the Father. Nothing can harm you. And all of these promises are are not only for this church in the first century. They're, They're for us today. The one who conquers can lay claim to these promises. The one who is a Christian who perseveres to the end can lay claim to these promises. May may we be those who walk with Christ and conquer. Amen. Father, we thank you for this letter. And Lord, we thank you that you have been kind enough, Lord, to call us to repentance. To call us to yourself. And we pray that more and more we would repent of our sin and that we would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ that we would forsake all hope that we have in and of ourselves and that we would fix our eyes upon Him, the One who holds 
the seven spirits of God and the seven churches. We pray this in his name. Amen.